If uh, you were at the concerts last week, uh, I picked up something really interesting. John Geiger told us that nothing says Christmas like a good knock-knock joke. Well, let's see. Knock-knock. Noah. Noah, good Christmas joke? Yeah, I do. Knock, knock. Olive. Olive Christmas, don't you? My apologies, John. Okay, each week during Advent, we've been looking at passages in the Old Testament that describe Jesus' existence before he was born. Theologians call him then the pre-incarnate Christ. He's always existed. In the beginning was God and so on. And then the word became flesh. Uh, Last week we looked at the angel of the Lord who manifests the qualities only God has as an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And today we're going to look at another passage, one last one before Christmas uh, in the Old Testament where a man suddenly appears to General Joshua as they prepare to go into the promised land. It's a very interesting account, and if you want to look at it, it's in the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 5. Read a few verses, and we'll talk about it today. Joshua, chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Now, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, "Uh, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Think about that one for a while. What do you mean? No political affiliation? No. Rather... I indeed come now as captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, bowed down, and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is probably one of the clearest instances we have in the Old Testament of the pre-incarnate Christ. First, though, before we dig into it, we need to look at the background and context of what is going on here. The children of Israel have come to the edge of the promised land that God promised to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hundreds of years prior. Genesis 15, we see him giving it to Abraham, and on that day, in Genesis 15, 18, 21, the Lord, notice the caps, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, Rephaim, the Amorite, and the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite, and all the other hard names in Canaan, giving it to you. They think it's their land, but it's actually mine, and I can give it to whomever I want. God promised to give the land to Israel as a, as a consequence, really, of his judgment for the sins of the Canaanites. 
God even says it like this, when their iniquity is full, that's when you're going to take it. Genesis 15, 15 to 16, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, meaning you're going to die. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Think about that. Uh, one thing I think we can take away from that is, I think God has a line he draws for how much evil he will tolerate from a nation. And the sin, he says, Abraham, the sins of the Amorite are not yet full. But when they reach that line, that's, <laughs> that's when my judgment begins, and you will take the land. Uh, now fast forward 700 years, uh, and the children of Israel who left Egypt have just finished sojourning with Moses in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses is dead. Joshua is now the spiritual and military leader of the children of Israel, and they prepare to do battle with the Canaanites to take the land that God has promised them. When they cross the Jordan River, the text says that the whole land of Canaan, including the Amorites, were an absolute dread of them. Listen to now Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted. There was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Joshua is preparing to lead the armies of Israel across the Jordan River to Jericho, which is the first city they must conquer uh, in the Promised Land as they cross the Jordan. Jericho, you see, was like a gateway city in the land of Canaan, and it was heavily fortified and protected. Uh, Archaeologists tell us that the, that the outer walls were 15 feet high and 25 feet thick. The watchtower was 28 feet tall. And when they heard that Israel was approaching them, they went into lockdown. Joshua 6.1. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out. No one came in. Uh, the archaeological evidence strongly supports the biblical account of Israel's miraculous vis victory. So they really, uh, the walls fell flat uh, as they marched around the city seven times. Uh, I was actually at the old city of Jericho in 1990 and walked around the excavation of that old city. Um, and I'm looking down on the ground as I'm going down and the I see this object in the ground. I picked it up, and uh, I don't know what it is or where it came from, but it's from the old city, uh, probably from a statue or something. And uh, the stone's some sculpture of something. I brought it home. I said, I want to remind myself of what God did at Jericho. I'll have that little piece in my office. Back at Joshua chapter 5, we pick up the story where Joshua's looking out over the city. Now, you can imagine, this Jericho was absolutely impregnable. 
and he's standing there looking it over the night before they're ready to go in, and he's probably wondering, how on earth are we going to take one of the most fortified cities in Canaan? Suddenly, this is when Joshua sees a man next to him. <laughs> Surprise. And he's got a sword drawn in his hand. Now imagine this. I can imagine he's absolutely surprised and confused because the man's sword is drawn. Uh, he asks him if he's a friend or foe. And the man identifies him as captain of uh, heaven's host. Host just means army. Uh, he's captain of heaven's armies. And the word captain here can be translated commander, general, you know, supreme commander, military officer. The fact that his sword is drawn in the hand means he's ready for battle. And that prompts Joshua to ask the question, are, are you for us or for, for our adversaries? And I love this. He just simply says, no. You didn't give me the right category. I'm not on either side, you see. I'm wondering whose side you're on. (laughs) Uh, He's a warrior from another army. He's unique. He's come as captain of heaven's armies. And with the sword drawn in his hand, the captain is is wondering uh, where Joshua is going to stand as they go to battle. And he'll know as, as he sees Joshua respond to his first command. So it's clear from the text that the captain of these heavenly armies who appeared to Joshua is, is more than a man. He's more than an angel. Uh, I say that because there are several other biblical connections uh, in the Old Testament where we see that the Lord himself is a warrior. Um, and most likely is the pre-incarnate Christ. The Old Testament, we see the Lord is a warrior who fights for his people. We have many, many references to this, but here's one in Exodus 14, 13 to 14, when they came, when the people of Israel come out of Egypt to the Red Sea, they're, they're, they're trapped. And Moses said, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And the Old Testament prophecies go on to describe the Messiah at times as a divine warrior. And we see this all through the scripture, various places. Psalm 24.8 talks about this king of glory they're expecting to come through the gates. Who is this king of glory? Well, he's the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He's a warrior. Or go to close to the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah 14, 3 and 4. Uh, speaking of the end of uh, biblical era, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day... His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half towards the south. 
And when we come to the New Testament, it's interesting. Uh, Jesus, when he's in Gethsemane, uh, his disciples are ready to follow him into battle. Peter took up his sword to defend Jesus. And you know what? Jesus said to him, put your, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? Listen to this. And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus has all the armies of heaven at his disposal. But Jesus was not there at that time to bring judgment, but salvation. Be assured, when Jesus returns, the passage we just read in Zechariah to the passage I'll read now in Revelation, he will return as a divine warrior and king with his angel armies and also those of us who believed in him, beside him when he conquers his enemies with just his word. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. John saw the heaven open and behold a white horse And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he may strike down the nations and will rule them with a rod of iron as he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now in Joshua 5, I believe we are seeing the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ of Old Testament history. One of the best examples I think we have. The man who appears to Joshua is not only the commander of the armies of heaven, he is God himself. At first, Joshua probably thinks that the man before him is some angelic being come to support Israel's armies in taking Jericho. So first thing Joshua does is concede to the commander. Uh, He calls him Lord, small letter L. Uh, master or, or general. Yes, sir. And Joshua asked the commander what he wants him to do. Now, if you and I were there, probably Joshua would be thinking, uh, uh, well, what military strategy is he going to give me to go and take the land, this warrior with his sword coming from Heaven, it's this angel warrior. Instead, the commander gives Joshua instructions for worship. Hmm. No grandiose military strategy. Joshua, let's start here. (laughs) Captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet. Trust me, this was a very humbling posture to a warrior. For the place you are standing is holy. 
And Joshua did so. Okay, the commander sees <laughs> that Joshua, General Joshua, is, going to, is willing to follow his commands. And we're going to start with worship. Now, when the commander of angel armies asked Joshua to remove his sandals, that's when I think Joshua knew right away, that, okay, this is no ordinary man, and it's no ordinary angel. How could he detect that? Because this personage, this warrior, uh, is he- Joshua is hearing the same thing that Moses heard from the burning bush. Exodus 3, 4, and 6, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside, God called to him, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. And then he said, don't come near. Remove your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, didn't want to look at God. He's hearing the same thing. And Joshua knew this, see. He knew Oh, where did I hear that before? Oh, I'm taking off my sandals. (laughs) Whenever you see holy ground mentioned in the scripture, it indicates the very presence of God in that place. The person standing before Joshua is none other than God himself. And remember, Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. We learned last week in the New Testament Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The commander of angel armies is the pre-incarnate Jesus standing before Joshua. And the first thing he asks him to do is surrender to me and worship, and then we'll go win your battle. Don't miss this, because we're going to be in battles too, you see. What are we supposed to learn? How do we apply what what it's saying here? First, we learn that the Lord identifies himself as a warrior and our defender against evil. And you know what we need to do because of that? We need to learn to rely on him when we're overwhelmed. Stop trying to figure out a strategy to save yourself. And dismiss the Lord as irrelevant. Don't do that. We have a tendency, when we do that, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, than our abilities really can pull off. In pride, we try to figure things out for ourselves when we got an overwhelming problem. And in doing so, we withhold our reliance on the Lord. Uh, They're going to take Jericho, but not by means they think. He he needs to know, are you willing to follow my commands? Are you willing to surrender to me? Do exactly what I say. We'll take the land. God will fulfill his promise. Our tendency, though, and we all struggle with this, is <laughs> we, uh, it's hard to, to really trust the Lord, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's hard. Because especially if you're in an overwhelming situation, very huge difficulty, uh, you're losing hope, you're losing heart. But the scriptures over and over remind us 
Think. Proverbs 3, 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your body, refreshment to your bones. So I think one of the important lessons here is when we come against adversity, spiritual opposition from anywhere, especially from our enemy Satan, you can feel it when when the spiritual warfare ramps up and the enemy, you're trying to do something good, something for the Lord perhaps, all of a sudden things start to fall apart. I've felt it many times and... Satan just wants to hinder the progress of our spiritual growth and the progress of the gospel any which way he can. And it becomes our Jericho. You know what we need to do? We need to metaphorically take off our shoes and worship. It seems odd to us, but that's exactly what we need to do, first and foremost. Just like Moses did, just like Joshua did. And if you read on, you know what happened to Job when he lost everything? First thing he did, worship. I don't understand it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Metaphorically, we need to take off our shoes, which is really kind of a, You can do it literally, I guess, but what we're saying is we surrender. What do you want us to do? Just like Joshua. Second thing you need to remember here is that we're no longer worshiping the pre-incarnate Christ like Moses and Joshua. We're worshiping the incarnate Christ, uh, which we'll talk about next Sunday. Jesus was sent to defeat our greatest enemy. Not people, but death itself, which holds us in bondage. The fear of death holds us in bondage for because we know uh, our, the guilt of our sin uh, weighs us down. We know there's going to be an accounting. <laughs> and Jesus, you see, came... The first time, not as a warrior to judge us, but as a sacrifice for our sin. And because he is God, his sacrificial death has eternal consequences for everyone who believes in him as their savior. I don't know if Jesus could have made it any clearer when he was on the earth, when he said to Nicodemus in John 3, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send the son of the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I don't think it could be any clearer. So what does that mean? Well, if you've never done so, I invite you to believe in Jesus as your savior. He's God in the flesh, the Messiah, who, when he came, took your place 
received the judgment you deserved for your sin so you could be free and live forever with him. And what we'll, talk, we'll talk about this next week. I hope you can be here Christmas Day. The captain of the armies of heaven has become the captain of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that uh, you sent your son, Jesus, uh, because you loved us. You wanted to save us from our sin, from death, from evil, from the brokenness in our world, from everything that's hindered uh, having an uh, intimate personal relationship with you. Thank you that you've sent him and that we look back on that sending now in the Advent season. We, we remember what you've done. And we thank you. He is the divine warrior who defeated death on our behalf by offering himself for our sins. And Lord, we anxiously await his return to reign and bring justice and righteousness to the earth. Would you help us now to honor Jesus as our commander and Lord? Help us to worship and obey him as Joshua did. Even in the midst of confusion and difficulty that we face, help us to be fully surrendered to Jesus, to his word, to his will. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.